My name is Chris Napier. I'm a member of the BGSM editorial team, and it's my pleasure today to introduce you to Alex Hutchinson. Alex is a science journalist specializing in endurance for Outside, the Globe and Mail, and Canadian Running, Running Magazine. He's contributed to publications such as the New York Times and the New Yorker, and is the author of a new book about the limits of endurance called Endure, which recently made the New York Times bestseller list. Thanks, Alex, for joining us today. Thanks a lot, Chris. It's great to be here, and I'm looking forward to the, the conversation. I'm wondering if you can elaborate perhaps on some of the the benefits that uh, your book might might give to uh, our community as far as injury prevention is concerned. Pushing your limits is, is uh, you're always running a balance between pushing to, to perform better and, and pushing too hard. And so one of the themes of my book that, that uh, you know, I was trying to explore the limits of endurance and, and what defines them. And the, the, the big area of research for, from my perspective that's been interesting in the last decade or so is, or a couple of decades really, is how the brain plays into the roles of, into the limits of endurance. And so it's interesting to think about, well, okay, if you're pushing your body, we know that if you push too much too hard, you're going to end up with an injury. But the same thing may be true from the brain. You know, you you can ask both in an acute sense, uh, can you push too hard? Can you you dig so deep that you, you know, you do damage to yourself? And in that case, I think, uh, you know, we can get into this, but I think the answer is mostly no, that it's very hard to push through your, those sort of protective layers of, of safety and, and, uh, and dig too deeply. But in a chronic sense, overuse injury mentally is, is, is there for sure, both because of, you have to think of the, 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 the mental load from lifestyle factors that, that athletes may face. And then also as we, as we learn more about how to push our mental limits and build, you know, quote unquote, uh, brain endurance, we also have to think about the, the training load, the mental training load that athletes face and whether it's possible to push too hard, uh, too much too soon and end up uh, with, with some form of overtraining, uh, however you want to define that. Great. Yeah. And I, I think, um, you know, certainly the, the uh, pushing those limits of endurance, um, you know, does it have the, the uh, possibility of pushing you into places where you, you shouldn't go? Is there, um, you know, I think of marathon runners and I think of uh, someone like Alberto Salazar, you mentioned in your book, um, you know, do these people by having that ability to push themselves to that limit, um, in the future, are they able to get back to those places, those dark places that they've taken themselves to, um, once they've already gone there or, or is there a limit in that in itself? Yeah. I mean, Alberto Salazar, you know, he was famously read his last rites after the Falmouth road race in 1978. And, you know, he also had this uh, famous collapse after the, the Boston marathon in 1982, the duel in the sun. So he's sort of the, the prototype of someone who could push right to the, the, the bottom of the barrel. Now, is, you know, is that really something that was dangerous for him or some unique characteristic from him or f- for him? One of the interesting conversations I had early in my research process with, was with Tim Noakes asking him, you know, how, how did he first start thinking about this idea of, of the brain's role in endurance? And he was saying, you know, what struck him is that the interesting thing is not that sometimes people die when they're climbing Mount Everest or running marathons on hot days. The fact is that, you know, thousands of people do these things on, in any given week and almost nobody dies. And that, that's what suggested to him that the brain's control mechanisms are pretty good. And so one of the areas that I, I ended up learning a lot more about over the last few years was free diving and extreme breath holding, which was an area that I knew nothing about, but I wanted to explore limits. And so as a, as an endurance athlete, oxygen is a, is a, you know, something we think a lot about in the, in the context of VO2 max. But I said, you know, strip away the, 
the, the exercise part and just say, how long can you hold your breath? How long can you actually go without oxygen? And I, you know, I was, I was totally flabbergasted to discover that the record for holding your breath without any, like without breathing pure oxygen beforehand or anything like that, it's 11 minutes and 35 seconds, which is stunning. But there's, you know, there's a guy named Anthony Bain who recently completed his PhD on the, on the physiology of extreme breath holding. And so it's fascinating to talk to him about uh, what goes into holding your breath. And so for most of us, if, we hold our, if I hold my breath, then sure, my oxygen levels are, are my saturation levels are going down, but my carbon dioxide levels are, are rising. And that's what causes the limit for most of us. After a certain point, you get what's called involuntary breathing movements. Um, you're Basically, your body decides it's time to breathe, and your, your breathing muscles contract, whether you like it or not. Um, and that might happen to me after 90 seconds or something like that. If you're a champion freediver, it takes a little longer to reach that particular limit, maybe four minutes, five minutes. Um, but that's still not your limit, because the freedivers have learned to circumvent this sort of warning system, the, the, the carbon dioxide warning system. They can actually hold their breaths all the way to the limit. They can hold their breaths until they pass out from lack of oxygen. But that's... I, I was talking to a guy named Brandon Hendrickson, who uh, is, recently set the American record for breath holding. He said his his breathing movements started involuntary breathing movements. That sort of the, the ostensible limit of his breath holding started at about just after four minutes. But he set his record as eight minutes and thirty five seconds. So there's a factor of two there between uh, the perceived limits and the the actual limits. And what's happening here isn't that he's able to you know turn off those involuntary breathing movements. They continue, and, and elite freedivers may have you know, as many as 100 involuntary contractions while they're holding their breaths. W- what they've learned is that just because the muscles are spasming them doesn't mean they have to breathe. They can ignore this, uh, this signal to breathe uh, because it's a warning sign. It's not an actual physical limit. And so we can't extrapolate directly from you know, freediving to every other endurance activity. But my sense is that uh, there's actually a pretty good margin of safety. Can things go wrong? Sure. Uh, you know, if you're running a marathon in Death Valley, things can go wrong. Like heat seems to be one particular area where the brain does make mistakes. Um, but but in general, I think, like, I, I the message I, w- I would want to get out is not that, you know, you should be very careful about pushing your limits because you could push too, too, too far. I think that's a rare thing that, that happens, but only in extreme circumstances. So do the top athletes already know everything that's in your book? Is Is this... Is this going to be new to them, or is there still something that they can learn from this, or or do they already inherently know this stuff? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. I, and I spent a lot of time thinking about this last year uh, while I was covering Nike's Breaking Two project, which was this marathon where Elliot Kipchoge, the, the Kenyan Olympic marathon champion, he ended up running two flat or two hours, zero minutes and twenty five seconds for a marathon under very sort of artificial conditions that weren't world record status. So I spent about six months covering this for, for Runner's World last year, and uh, you know I, I was really diving into the weeds of what exactly allowed Kipchoge to run two and a half minutes faster than the world record. Was it you know the shoes with the carbon fiber plate? Was it uh, the, the drafting pattern? Was it, was it the, the sports drinks they came up with? Uh, and, and it's with time I've had a chance to, as, you know, as time goes on and I look back on that, I, I find those details I think are maybe less... Uh, less significant than I thought at the time. And what I, what I come away with when I think about that is, is, you know, what did Elliot Kipchoge bring to the table? Um, you know, he obviously ran an amazing race and how did he do that? And, and speaking to him over the course of those months, it was really striking the, the, the emphasis he put on the role of the brain that he would say, you know, I asked him at the start of the pro- process, he had, he had run a half marathon in just under 60 minutes. And then I said, you know, how are you going to run twice the distance at the same pace. How are you going to change your training? And he said, 
I, you know, I'm not going to change my training. The training will be the same, but my mind will be different. And that seemed sort of like an empty platitude to me. But over time, it became clear that he really took this seriously. And he was systematically and deliberately building up his confidence. And by the time we got to the race, it was clear that he believed he could run two hours. And the other two guys in the project uh, didn't necessarily believe it. They hoped they could, but they didn't believe it. So, you know, as I think about this and as I think about all the stuff I was looking at in my book, I feel like there's nothing in the book that's going to make Elliot Kipchoge a, best, a better athlete. He's, he and, you know, other greats over the years have, have found their own ways of, of getting at this and of, of pushing their limits uh, maximally. Great. And that's, that's a great segue into my next question, which was uh, what can the, the everyday athlete, the weekend warrior or the uh, sort of, you know, sub elite marathon, or what, what can they do if they want to uh, hack away at their marathon time or improve their performance on the bike? What, what, what would you say that top three strategies after all the work that you've done after the last 10 years? Yeah, I think the, the, the biggest thing for me, like, you know, I've thought about this a lot. If I had a time machine after spending, you know, a decade writing about everything, you know, whether it's supplements and training methods and, and everything I can think of about how to optimize performance, what would I tell my 20-year-old self who was aspiring to, to you know, to be the, the best athlete possible? I think the, the, the very first thing I would say is um, look into motivational self-talk. And the, the irony is that as a, my 20-year-old self was being was receiving training in motivational self-talk, we had our, my, our track team in university had a sports psychologist who worked with us and taught us this, these techniques, and but we just thought it was ridiculous. We, we, no one took it seriously. Uh, it didn't seem real to us. And, and now in, in, now that I've gone through this process, I sort of have the, uh, of, of looking into the research, and, and I, I now see that I, I think it's actually really a powerful technique, and there's studies now that demonstrate that it works and demonstrates how it works. Uh, one of the ones that was most striking to me is from Stephen Chung's group at Brock University. He had cyclists in a heat chamber doing time to exhaustion tests, uh, and he gave half of the motivational self-talk training. So what that means basically is you become aware of the internal monologue in your head in stressful situations like a competition. And if that monologue is, you know, oh, no, this hurts, you know, you're never going to be able to do this, that's, that's bad news. So you become aware of that. Then you identify things that you could say instead like, you're trained for this, you're ready for this, you can do this, keep pushing. And then you, 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 the key part is you practice it. You don't just expect you can roll out of bed and, and do this. You, you practice these in, in training until they become second nature. Uh, and so then when you're, next time you're in a competition, you, you're, you're giving yourself positive self-talk. And the idea here is basically that what, what matters is not your lactate levels or your heart rate. What matters is how your brain is interpreting those signals. And what the, the voice, the monologue in your head can subtly affect how you perce- the how you perceive a given physical effort and how hard it feels. So in 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 Stephen Chung's study, uh, after a couple of weeks of self talk training, the the cyclists were able to increase their time to exhaustion in this heat chamber from eight minutes to eleven minutes. And interestingly, they the their core temperature they were able to push their core temperature zero point three degrees uh, higher. That's a significant difference. So they're able to dig deeper into their physiological reserves as a result of this self talk training. But the really crucial detail is that their perception of effort, their RPE, didn't change. So they're putting out more effort, they're digging deeper, but their brain is interpreting it as the same effort. So they've changed the relationship between their physical effort and their perception of that effort. So on the on the topic of what we, what we can measure, uh, you know, I'm doing my PhD in running biomechanics, and uh, we can collect uh, an enormous amount of data on someone's running, uh, having them run for 10 seconds on an instrumented treadmill. 
Uh, and then with measure with wearable devices, um, we can track that person outside of the lab now and uh, monitor their heart rate, uh, their step rate. We can look at uh, the their altitude and their duration of the run, their pace. Uh, with all of this data that we can collect these days, uh, how much do you think is for our amusement, as A.V. Hill put it, and how much do you think is actually practical and useful information? Yeah, that's, I mean, it's it's one of those things, you know, there's that cliche in medicine that 50% of what we know is wrong, and we don't know which 50%. And I think in this sort of explosion of data collection, you know, maybe 90% of it is useless, but we don't know which 90% because there, there's some, there's definitely some gold in there. And so, you know, I think if you, if you were to go, uh, you know, eavesdrop on a room full of triathletes uh, discussing their training, you'd, you'd, you'd know that they're getting a ton of amusement out of the ability to, to monitor their training, to slice and dice all the, all the variables and see how, what changes in response to a given uh, intervention. And, uh, you know, I think that's great. Figuring out what's ac- what really gives useful, actionable advice that you couldn't get from, you know, just writing down a, a, a 1 to 10 RPE after each uh, training session, that's still a really open question to me. And, I, I, you know, I think there's use in data, but I think the, uh, I think the ability to, 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 to leverage that data is, is something that some people have, but, but that the, the average person who's just, uh, you know, been given their, their Fitbit for Christmas or whatever, that, they, they, that there's still a big gap there in terms of making that useful. And I think uh, the other thing I would add on that is, you know, I can remember in the 90s, early 90s, when I was running, I, w- I w- you know, I would wake up every m- morning, take my heart rate, stand up, take my standing heart rate, and I'd p- keep all this data, you know, with pencil and paper, and then I'd go to Lotus One Two Three and plot graphs of like running averages of all these trends, because I loved it. It was fun. The danger is that you know that was laborious. Like I had to spend time collecting the data. If if I was you know 19 years old now in that and with like eight different gadgets that could give me gigabytes of data per day. It's like there's a bit of a rabbit hole that you have to be careful of, and, and there's a danger that you start to lose touch with the perceptual measures, which are super important. In, in a competition sense, if you, if you don't know how you're feeling, you know, you, I, 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 I still don't think you can trust the device to tell you how you're feeling or whether you're on that razor's edge or whether you're having a slightly better day than normal. So I think there's, I think there's risks that, and they're personality dependent. Some people actually could probably really use the accountability of data uh, to help them. Other people, who, who, uh, you know, especially endurance athletes on the sort of obsessive side, of which I would count myself, you, you, you have to be a little bit careful about uh, getting too much of what you wish for. Yeah, so just to follow up on those points, how much do you think uh, the sports medicine clinician or the coach can help guide uh, athletes in terms of what's, uh, what's really important out there? Yeah, I, think, I mean, I think that's a, that's a, a super important role that, that clinicians or coaches can, can play because, uh, you know, there is no, like, as a journalist, I can't write an article that says, here's what you should monitor because what you should monitor depends on who you are and what your situation is. So if you, as a, as a, as a physiotherapist, can see that someone has, you know, can watch someone run on a treadmill and see that their gait uh, is, what you know, well, that their cadence is too low or that they have too much vertical oscillation or, you know, any number of things, you can tell them, this is what you should monitor. You should get a, a, a GPS watch that can tell you whether it's cadence or whether it's something more sophisticated, and, and you should keep track of that. And you should try this intervention. You should watch over the next eight weeks whether you see any changes in that. 
But for someone else, like for someone who's already got an ordinary cadence and no problem, it's like getting them to track cadence is one of those things that can create problems rather than solve problems. And, uh, you know, the same thing is true if, if someone is overtraining, like maybe heart rate is the right thing to monitor and maybe heart rate zones and making sure that they're staying, uh, you know, spending 80% of their time, below, you know, in zone two or below or whatever, the, depending on how you classify your training. So I think, you know, if we have 15 different variables that we can track right now, I don't think anybody should be paying a lot of attention to more than a few of those. And I think... A, a clinician in an injury sense or a coach in a training sense uh, can play a huge role in picking which which two or, or which three are, are useful to pay attention to. Whatever you're tracking, I think the the one vital thing to add is a subjective measure like RPE so that you can correlate the difference between are, are you going faster today because you tried harder or are you, just go, are you going faster because you're getting fitter? And if you don't have a, a, an RPE measure, you're, you're missing some, some vital data to correlate with that objective data. Yeah, so RPE or rating your perceived exertion, how would you practically use that in a situation with an athlete? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question because there are, uh, there are lots of different flavors. Uh, I think the most useful and practical one is, is what, what's called session RPE. So it's rating of perceived exertion. And instead of thinking of, you know, how hard was the hardest moment of that run, you, you just give it a global average. You, you actually try not to think too deeply and you, just, you finish your whole session and say, on a scale of 1 to 10, how hard was that? You know, was that a seven out of ten? Was that a three out of ten? Um, and you can look online and find anchors that co- where seven corresponds to very hard and uh, or whatever, and five corresponds to moderate. You don't need to worry too much about that as long as you're consistent, so that you can see trends over time as to whether things are are getting harder or easier. So I, I think that's really useful. But I mean, I, obviously, you have your own experience both as a clinician and as a as a high level runner. Like, w- w- what kind of data do you track yourself, and do you tell your 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 patients to track? Yeah, I think like you, uh, you know, I, I have an interest in in numbers and tracking all sorts of variables, and so I, I've probably tracked a lot of things over over my time uh, as a runner uh, myself. Um, but I think probably, you know, I've I've left behind a lot of things such as heart rate um, because you're right. I, I think giving some sort of session RPE uh, for a, for a workout or an easy run is is probably the the best way to sum up. Um, my effort for that, uh, that session. Um, and then I, I think probably to give some sort of objective, uh, number to that session as well, either using, uh, duration or, or distance run, um, and, and using those to multiply them together to get a product, I think is really important to get a sense of load and being able to track that over time. Uh, you know, as a biomechanist, I think probably the, the most useful, um, variable I collect is is cadence and I can even see in my runs as I start to fatigue my cadence drops off and so that's something I actually use uh, personally and, and something I certainly recommend to to patients and I think there are other variables that uh, can be useful for specific individuals but again it, it really depends on what I see in, in my assessment uh, as to what I recommend for that patient. So, so in practice, how do you actually measure cadence? I assume you're not out there uh, counting steps as you run. So, I, I have a Garmin watch, and I use that to monitor my cadence, and um, it, you know, it's 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 pretty accurate, and so I can it's all it's all downloaded automatically, and um, so I don't have to really worry about uh, writing it down after my run. But I'll often go back and and uh, look at my you know mileage for the week at the end of the week, and I'll I'll look at my um, 
my cadence uh, throughout the week and I'll look at specific runs perhaps where I, um, you know, was feeling uh, like it was a bit more effort. So for example, uh, you know, I, I had a, a run on Sunday, I went 23K um, and, you know, at the end of that run, I, I came home and I wrote down what my session RPE was. I, I gave it a, a six out of 10. It was meant to be a fairly easy run, but I just was tired. I'd been up late the night before and I, um, you know, it was a bit more effort than it probably should have been. Um, but so I'll, I'll then multiply that six by 23 and that's my, my number for the, the overall score of my, my load for that, that session. Um, and then yeah, I, I can also look at my cadence for that session and see where, you know, if I started to fall off after about 15 K, um, and for me, typically I, I like to keep everything above 170. And so if I, you know, I'm usually around more like 175, 176 pretty steadily. Um, if I see my, our, my, uh, cadence start to drop down below 170, that's a bit of a warning light for me. Yeah, no, that's, and that's definitely the kind of information that I, that I found useful, uh, when I was competing more seriously. And I, I you know, I, I should say for, for, for everyone that, I, I still run every day and I, I do not keep a log. I don't track any of this stuff. Um, if I start getting injured, I, I would probably start trying to figure out what the problem is, but, but I'm right now I'm in a happy place. And so I think that's also an important point to, to make is you don't have to measure things if you're happy with the way things are going. But if you get as, to go back to your, your earlier point, if, if it's fun, that's great. And then also if, if, if you have either a performance or a, you know, injury avoidance goal that, that isn't going the way you want it to, then you really, then you want to start digging into some of that data. But if, uh, if, if things are going well, there's, there's an argument for, for not, uh, not monkeying with it too much. I think the takeaway is let your needs drive your actions, you know, unless you want to try everything coming down the pike, which is maybe the, the road to, to madness. Uh, thanks, Alex. I think that's uh, been a really informative um, podcast for our listeners. And uh, I really enjoyed uh, your book, Endure, on a personal level. I, I enjoyed reading through. I, I know that uh, I've been with you a little bit over the last few years as you've been sort of plugging away at this. And I, I know it's been a, a task of endurance for yourself to make it make it through this. Uh, but I think it's a fantastic uh, product at the end. And I, I really encourage all our listeners to, to go out and and find it. We'll provide the link at the end of this podcast. And I also want to um, take this opportunity to uh, remind our listeners about uh, the World Congress of Sports Physical Therapy that we'll be hosting in Vancouver in October 2019. Uh, We've got a fantastic um, lineup of speakers that we're starting to confirm, and uh, we'll be starting to release some of those big names shortly. 